John 18, 33 through 40. So Pilate entered his, his headquarters again and called Jesus to him and said, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, if I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber, the word of the Lord. Well, in the weeks leading up to Easter, we are um, looking at the events leading up to and including the crucifixion of Jesus, and we're asking the question, why did Jesus die? And um, why does it matter? What difference does it make in our lives and in the world around us? And as we get into this particular passage, I want to ask you a question. Does anybody here by any chance just happen to remember the 2016 presidential election? I was just checking to see if you were all still awake. Of course we do. That is a silly question. Even people who don't care about politics remember that election. It was by far the most contested, controversial, polarizing, and ultimately mind-boggling election in recent history. It was like an earthquake. Um, nobody saw it coming, and it shook everything up. But here's the thing, as seismic as that election felt, um, we're already beginning to feel the tremors of 2020, aren't we? I mean, candidates are lining up, op-eds are being written, battle lines are being drawn. As, as big as 2016 felt, 2020 already feels even bigger, and we're still a year away from primary season. All of that highlights a reality that I want to highlight. Politics feels really real, doesn't it? In fact, for a lot of people, and, and probably including many people in this room, um, politics, it feels like the weight of the whole world is resting on the outcome of, of one political election, like the whole hope of humanity depends upon the outcome. This is an area that is fraught with all kinds of emotions, fear, anxiety, insecurity, hope, hope for your lives, hope for the world. Um, but here's the real question I want to ask us this morning. Um, the question is this, what feels most real to you? Is it the 2020 election or is it the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? What has the most weight in your life? What has the most gravitas? And why am I asking all of these questions? 
The reason is because this passage that we just read shows us a confrontation between two kingdoms, the kingdom of Rome and the kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom of political power and the kingdom of the crucified Son of God, which raises all kinds of difficult questions like, what is the relationship between Christianity and politics? Um, is Christianity uh, purely a, uh, a religion of inner spiritual salvation, or does it have a role to play in society? And if so, what kind of role should it play? Or if you become a Christian, does that mean that you have to join a particular political party? All of those questions are huge questions, and we'll touch on some of them this morning. But the main question, the biggest question, the real question this passage addresses is this. What does it mean to say that Jesus is king? That's the real question here. In fact, that's the question Pilate wants to know. Jesus, are you a king? That's the real question here. We need the answer to that question also, because if we really want to understand why Jesus died and why it matters in this world, what difference it makes in this world, then we have to understand what it means to say that Jesus is king. So let's look at this this morning under three headings. We're going to see the nature of Jesus's kingdom, the witness of his kingdom, and how that kingdom comes into our lives. All right? The nature of his kingdom, the witness of his kingdom, and how that kingdom comes into our lives. First, the nature of his kingdom. Um, this passage begins with Pilate asking Jesus a question. Uh, Pilate says, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, it's important to understand that Pilate, this is not a spiritual question. He's not asking if Jesus is a religious leader. This is a political question. He's asking if Jesus is a political leader. He wants to know if Jesus is a threat to Rome. And notice how Jesus answers him. In verse 36, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. But then in 37, verse 37, he turns around and says, you say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Now, this is a, um, a purposefully ambiguous answer, but there's a lot of clarity in its ambiguity. Because Jesus is saying that I am a king, but, my king, but I'm not the kind of king you think I am. And, and I am here to change the world, but not in the way you think I'm coming to change the world. Jesus really is walking attention here. He's walking a tightrope in between two extremes without falling over um, onto either side. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's take a look. On the one hand, Jesus is saying that his kingdom is not politicized, okay? So once again, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. They would be taking up the sword, now, in the Bible, the sword is an image for political power. And Jesus is saying, my kingdom doesn't work like that. The church, Jesus is saying, should never be so identified with one governmental system or one political party that it's indistinguishable from it. Now, that might make some people nervous. Understandably, some people might say, well, does, Jesus, does that mean that... Um, that, that we should just have nothing to do with politics? Because there are a lot of really messed up things in this world that need to change. And shouldn't we be doing something about that? Jesus, Jesus, what Jesus does here is he relativizes politics. He says, in effect, that 
that you should never make one political leader, one political system, one political ideology, you should never give it your absolute allegiance. You know, in ancient Rome, that was a totalitarian government. And, in fact, the emperor was worshipped as God. You were required by law to give your absolute allegiance to the emperor in that culture. And Jesus is saying you must never do that. Never give your ultimate allegiance to one political leader, one political system, one political ideology. You must never do that. And so the question really is valid. Well, does that mean we should never have anything to do with politics? What about all the things in this world that need to be changed? Well, that leads to the other side of this tension that Jesus is walking. Because on the one hand, Jesus is saying, my kingdom should never be politicized. But on the other hand, he says, my kingdom should never be privatized. Because look at it once again. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. But then he says, but my kingdom is coming into this world. In other words, Jesus is saying, my kingdom is intended to transform this world, to change this world, to renew this world. It's coming into this world. Now, we talk about this all the time here, but do you, what do you think God's ultimate goal for the world is? Most religions say that God's goal is to help everyone escape this world. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, no, God's goal is to renew this world. God's ultimate goal is not to destroy this world and carry people to heaven away from earth. God's goal is to renew this world by bringing heaven down to earth. And Jesus is the king from another world who has come into this world to renew it. That's what he's saying here. So in other words, we could think of it like this. Um, the entrance of Jesus Christ into this world, is, it's kind of like a sunrise. You know, when that first ray of sunlight breaks across the horizon... It brings light into the world, right? But things are still pretty dark. One day, the Bible says, Jesus is going to return and he's going to renew the whole world. That's like high noon. That's like when the sun is up in the sky, fully shining. But until that happens, until the sun is, is fully shining, a lot of times it's helpful to light a lamp if you want to get things done. Politics is a little bit like lighting a lamp early in the morning when it's still dark. It's very helpful to get things done. But putting all of your hope in politics is like putting all of your hope in a lamp when the sun is starting to rise. It's temporary light. It's artificial light. That doesn't mean it's not important, but, but once that sun has risen, it's completely obsolete. It's got a limited shelf life. Jesus is saying that the entrance of my kingdom into this world is promising renewal in the same way that a ray of the dawn is promising high noon. That's what he's saying here. And that's um, why we see that Jesus' kingdom is meant for the renewal of this world. That's what he's doing, and that's what he's saying. So, for instance, if Jesus had only said, look, my kingdom is not of this world, if that's the only thing he said, then it would be easy to think that Jesus is saying, look, um, I'm just here to bring inner peace, help people connect to God. But I don't really care uh, about political or social or cultural issues. But that's not what Jesus says. There, you know, there are a lot of people that think that's what Christianity ought to be. Um, there's a narrative in our culture. It says that if Christianity works for you, if it helps you have a better life, great. But you should never say it's true for everybody. That is a privatized view of spirituality that says that um, 
that choosing a spiritual path is like choosing a cell phone plan. How do you choose a cell phone plan? There are dozens of options out there. The way you choose a cell phone plan is you find the one that, that has the options that work for you. And so in our culture, we would never say that there's one cell phone plan that's true for everybody. A statement like that doesn't even make sense. Our culture says that spiritual reality is in the same category as choosing a cell phone plan. Because our culture says that there's a difference between public facts and private values. Public facts are things that are true for everybody, and you know those facts by means of things like science. On the other hand, you have private values, and those are things like morality or spirituality. Our culture says the way you know those things is by listening to your feelings or following your heart. It says those things may be true for you, but they're not true for everybody. The narrative in our culture is that spiritual reality is not a reality that really matters. It's not, it's not the real world. Spiritual reality is like, a, it's like an add-on or a supplement to the real world. But the real world is the world of, of elections and policy decisions and science and the Dow Jones and, and gas bills. But, but our culture says that that's the real world and that you should just keep your faith private. You should just keep spiritual reality to yourself. Keep it private. But friends, a privatized faith is a relativized faith. And that means that it is a faith that can, can have no impact in this world, can never make a difference in this world. Now listen, I understand, you know, this is something that makes a lot of people nervous, and rightly so, because as soon as we start talking about bringing religious faith out of private and into public, it's very easy to miss that tension and to go right from being privatized right into being politicized. You know, there's an old saying that goes, mixing religion and politics is like mixing ice cream and manure. It's, it's, it doesn't really do much to the manure, but it really does. <laughs> it doesn't do much to the manure, but it sure does ruin the ice cream. Right? But friends, Jesus is saying that a privatized faith is a relativized faith, and we should never do that. In other words, Christianity is a public faith because the gospel is public truth. That's what Jesus is showing us here. He's saying, look, my kingdom is not just about private values. My kingdom is about renewing this world. Don't ever make political power ultimate because political power is fading. But faith should be involved in the good of this world, in the renewal of this world, because it's pointing to something that's coming, that's real. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen the nature of Jesus' kingdom. But next we see the witness of his kingdom. Because what does this all look like in practice? Let's keep digging. Um, for instance, how does Jesus bring his kingdom into the world? In verse 37, he says, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. So let's ask the question, what does that mean? How does Jesus bear witness to the truth? Well, first of all, it's important to understand that when Jesus talks about the truth, he's not talking about a set of abstract principles or propositions. He's talking about himself. The Gospel of John says over and over again, Jesus himself says over and over again that, that he doesn't just point to the truth. He is the truth. Every other religious leader says, don't look at me, I'm pointing you to the truth. Don't, don't look at me, look at where I'm pointing you, I'm pointing you to the truth. Jesus never says that. 
He says, if you want to know the truth, look at me. Jesus always points to himself. So when Jesus says, I came to bear witness to the truth, what he's saying is, I came to bear witness about myself. If you want to know the truth, you have to look at me. And the place that you see that most clearly and most powerfully is on the cross. The cross is the place where Jesus most clearly shows us what it means to bear witness to the truth. That's what he's doing on the cross. He's showing us what it means to bear witness to the truth, not by picking up power, but by laying it down. Not by picking up the sword, but by going under the sword. The cross shows us what it means to bear witness to the truth. Now, what does that mean for us? I mentioned at the end of last week's sermon that the cross gives Christians a blueprint for living. In other words, Jesus calls every Christian to follow him in bearing witness to the truth by bearing witness to the truth. And the cross gives us our blueprint for that. That means laying down power, laying down the sword. But what does that mean practically speaking? It's a huge question. Christians have been thinking and rethinking that question for centuries. I've been thinking and rethinking it for years myself. But there are two things that are pretty clear. Both of them involve a cost. Both of them involve laying down power. And the two things are this. Bearing witness to the truth means that we should be theologically exclusive and socially inclusive. Christian witness to the truth of Jesus means that theologically we will be radically exclusive, but socially we will be radically inclusive. So first of all, bearing witness to the truth means being theologically exclusive. Did you know that um, ancient Rome was one of the most pluralistic cultures that ever existed? There were hundreds of gods, dozens of religions. Rome said, Everybody is free to pick whatever religion they want, worship whatever God you want. It was very tolerant of everyone's religion. Sound familiar? In that culture, you were free to worship whatever God you wanted. There was just one tiny little wrinkle to that. I mentioned it just a bit ago. You were free to worship whatever God you want, but there was one God that everyone was required by law to worship. Do you know who it was? The emperor, Caesar. Every single person, no matter what other God you might have worshipped, everyone was required by law to proclaim Caesar is Lord. Christians wouldn't do it. Instead of saying Caesar is Lord, Christians said no, Jesus is Lord. That is not just a theological statement. That is also a political statement. That is a deeply subversive statement in the midst of a highly charged political atmosphere. And when Christians said that, it cost them. Not just their reputations, it cost them their lives. Now, in our culture, what does that mean for us? Again, we have this narrative, this view in our culture that says spirituality is something that everyone should be free to choose for themselves. It's like picking a cell phone plan. And that's actually a good thing because, you know, no one should ever be coerced into religious belief. But there's a narrative that goes along with, it, uh, with that that says all religions are basically the same. No one religion is truer than another, and no one should ever see, say that their religion is the true religion. You realize what that is, don't you? That is a theologically exclusive truth claim, and it seeks to enforce itself. It is coercive, because if you don't go along with that narrative in our culture, if you don't publicly confess that creed, it will cost you. It won't cost you your life, at least not in this country, but there is a social cost to... to um, 
uh, refusing to bow down to that creed in our culture. Friends, bearing witness to Jesus means being theologically exclusive. It means saying that, that Jesus is not just, you know, one more spiritual option or self-help guru among hundreds and thousands of others in this world. It means saying that Jesus is the only Lord and creator of this universe from beyond this world. So first, bearing witness means being theologically exclusive. But secondly, it means being um, socially inclusive. So once again, if, if you were to look at the early church, the early church was by far the most multi-ethnic, multi-class community the world had ever seen. And there was a cost to that. It meant laying down powers. So for instance, in that culture, both abortion and infanticide were not only legal, but oftentimes mandated, depending on the case. But in that culture, um, a lot of times people, um, if they decided they didn't want to do abortion because it was very dangerous, although a lot of women did it. Um, by the way, side note, very ironically, in that culture, abortion was often mandated, but it was the men who were often forcing women to get abortions instead of the other way around. Um, the men would force, they could mandate that a woman would get a, an abortion. So if a woman got pregnant over the age of 40 years old, I think there, there was a law that commanded they, they would have to get an abortion, even if the woman didn't want to do it. So, but if they did give birth, if they did bring the baby to full term, a lot of times what they do is they would toss the baby out. They'd throw it on a trash heap or throw it in a sewer and just let the baby die of exposure. It was very common. In fact, encouraged and sometimes even commanded in that culture. Christians would go out to the trash heaps. They would go out to the sewers and they would rescue the babies, bring them home and raise them up in their own homes as their own children. It cost them to do that. Or let me give you one more example from um, ancient Roman culture. In, in ancient Roman culture, um, women were required to be 100% um, sexually faithful to their husbands, but the men were able to, um, they were basically able to have sex with whoever they wanted. Men could have as many mistresses as they wanted, as many lovers as they wanted. It was perfectly acceptable in that culture. The church said, not here. The church said, you don't do that here. Sex is for married people only. So if you're a man, the church said, you cannot just put your hands on whatever woman you want. It was the first Me Too movement. <laughs> Seriously. Do, do you realize what happened as a result of all of this? Women and slaves and poor people flocked to the church because it was by far the most socially inclusive community the world had ever seen. It changed the world, but it cost the church to do that. It meant laying down power. There was a cost that was demanded of them in order to do that. Now, here's the thing. Bearing witness today means doing the same thing. It means that, that we should hold on to both spiritual truth, theological truth, and social concern, concern, social compassion. It means holding both of those things together. Friends, that is very, very difficult to do. Many churches are very good at doing one or the other of those things, but not both. Conservative churches are really good at doing theological truth. Liberal churches are really good at doing the social concern, but very few churches are good at doing both. And here's what happens if we don't. If all we have is the theological truth, but not the social inclusivity, not the social compassion, then the implication is that God only cares about saving individual souls, but he doesn't really care about this world. 
But on the other hand, if all we have is the social compassion, but not the theological truth, then the implication is that all that matters is saving this world because this is the only world that exists and human beings are the only ones that can save it. You don't need God. You certainly don't need Jesus. A, a secular, progressive worldview would look at that and say, hey, church, we are so glad you finally caught up with us. We've been waiting for you. It's about time. And we are more than happy to let you pitch in with the work we've already been doing in this world. It is so hard to hold both of those things together, both the theological truth and the social action. But when both of those things come together, that is a powerful witness that works for the good of this world, but not because this world is the only world there is, but because God is one day going to come and renew this world, and it points not just to the world to come, but to the God who's going to come and renew it because he cares so much about this world. Friends, Christianity is a public faith because the gospel is public truth. It was never intended just to be a, um, you know, like a feel-good, self-help, um, therapeutic expression of your own individuality, like choosing a, a health club or a counselor. It's intended for the good of the world, for the care of this world, because it points to a God who's coming from outside of this world to renew this world. That means that as Christians, we should be politically involved, but never politically captive. Because the cross gives us the blueprint for living. It says it's laying down power, laying down the sword, not picking up power, not picking up the sword. That's our blueprint for living. And, and so that everything we do we work for the good of this world, but as we do that, what we're really doing is pointing to, bearing witness to a world that's coming, a world that's going to bring renewal into this world, and pointing to the king who comes from outside of this world to renew this world. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the nature of Jesus' kingdom. We've seen the witness of his kingdom. But lastly, we need to see how his kingdom comes into our own lives. Because what does this mean? How does this actually happen in our own lives? You see as we talk about this, don't you, that this is an incredibly unique way to live, and it's also an incredibly difficult way to live. How would we actually go about living this way? Well, the cross shows us, because in this passage, we see it, that, that Jesus on the cross is not just showing us what to do. He's showing us that he's already done all of it for us, because remember the question of this whole series, why did Jesus die? The cross shows us the answer that Jesus did not come just to be an example to us. He came to be a substitute for us. That if you want to know the answer to the question, why did Jesus die? That's the answer. Now, does Jesus show us how to live? Does he show us what to do? Is the cross our blueprint for living? Of course he does, and of course it is. But Jesus can never be an example to you unless he is first and foremost a substitute for you. And all of the gospel accounts are really clear about this. So, for instance, in our passage, if you look at it, Pilate, after interviewing Jesus, he comes out to the religious leaders and he says, I find no guilt in Jesus. Jesus is completely innocent. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas, it says, was a robber. Now, who's Barabbas? All of the other gospel accounts tell us that he was an insurrectionist. That means that he was a revolutionary in the classic sense. 
In other words, Barabbas was a guy who was picking up power. He was picking up the sword because he wanted to burn down the system and replace it with another system. He wanted to get one king off the throne and put another king on the throne, a substitute king. And guess what? We're all Barabbas. We're all Barabbas. Because every single one of us, whenever we want to have control over our own lives, whenever we want to get control over the lives of the people in our lives, control over our circumstances, what we're doing is we're showing that we don't really want God to be king over our lives. We want to be king of our lives. We're pushing one king off the throne in order to get ourselves on the throne. And by the way, we can do that also with our religious observance. Whenever we think that because we've been good people or we've been obedient people or we've been faithful people that therefore God owes us, we're just showing that we don't really want God to be king of our lives. We want to be king of our lives. Every single one of us is a rival king. We're all revolutionaries and we all deserve guilt because we all substitute ourselves for God. But Jesus substituted himself for us. That's what this whole transaction with Barabbas shows us. And really the fascinating and heartbreaking thing about this is that that name, Barabbas, literally means son of the father. In other words, Pilate sets forward both of these men. He, he brings them out and he says, okay, do you see these two men? One of them is innocent, Jesus. The other one is guilty, Barabbas. One of them is going to be condemned, and the other one is going to go free. Take your pick. On the one hand, you have Barabbas, this false king who calls himself the son of the father. On the other hand, you have Jesus, the true king and the real son of the father. That's who you have here. And because Jesus is the real king and the real son of the father, he's the one that went to the cross and took the punishment that we deserve He's the true king, the true son of the father that took the punishment we deserve so that false kings like you and me could receive the blessing of being called children of the living God because that's exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. You know, we look at all the power we think we have and, and we want to grab hold of it. We want to wrap our arms around it, hold on to it really tight because we are so desperately afraid of letting go of control, of losing control over our lives, losing control of our circumstances. And the more we do that, the more we try to get control, the worse our lives get, the worse our world gets. Politics is a really potent example of that. But on the cross, Jesus let go of all the power. Jesus Christ, the, the one who from all eternity had ultimate authority, ultimate power, ultimate dominion, he stretched out his hands. He opened his arms wide, wide enough to let go of all of his power and wide enough that they could nail his hands down on the cross. There is nothing more powerless than having your hands nailed down. And yet at that very moment when Jesus appeared to be most powerless, he was destroying all sin, all evil, and all death for all time. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ, the true king, the true son of the father, was treated like a false king so that false kings like you and me could be treated like children of the living God. And when you see him doing that for you, now all of a sudden, now you don't have to hang on to the power anymore. Now you don't have to, to have all of the insecurity of having to have control over our lives, control over other people. Listen, I understand, you know, our lives 
and the problems and the insecurities and the fears and the anxieties that fill our lives, they feel so real, don't they? And yet Jesus Christ comes into this world, the king from another world comes into this world to renew this world because he says all of those fears, all of those anxieties, all of those problems that you have, they're important. I care about them and I came to do something about them. The more you see that, the more you, you take the historical cosmic reality of the cross and press it into your heart, press it into your mind, the more you do that, the more it reshapes the way you see this world, the more it reorders all of your priorities in this world because the more it shows you the king who came from beyond this world to renew this world. Friends, it is really hard to hold together both the theological truth and the social compassion, to hold those things together. The world and our anxious, fearful hearts will do everything in their power to get us to separate those things. And it's really hard in this world to lay down power, lay down control, the only way you can do it is if you see Jesus on the cross laying all the power down for you so that he can bring all of his power in your life. Do you need power in your life today to lay down power? Do you need power in your life today to, to spend your life for the good of the world and therefore bear witness, point to the coming king who's going to renew the world? The only way you get it is by seeing that on the cross, Jesus already did all of that for you. Take that power into your life. The more you receive that power into your life, the more it changes your life and the more it changes the world. Let's pray.